Welcome to another edition of Faith to Live By. I'm your host, Pam Christian. And I want you to know right up front, it was necessary for me to pre-record this particular podcast a couple of weeks in advance because I get to attend the Clay Clark and General Flynn's Reawaken America Tour event in Anaheim, July 17 and 18. So I won't be able to bring you information about that event until next week. But I'm planning on interviewing several people while I'm there, which will allow me to share the interviews with you in the weeks to come. Moving ahead with my podcast, I plan on having more interviews and introducing you to people that I think we need to hear from. God is truly moving in his people, and this is the time of shifting into an entirely new era with momentum for the start of the great harvest of souls. Here's one thing I feel strongly in my spirit to share with you and ask you to maintain as a mandate over everything you think, say, or do. We are especially blessed to be living in these days on God's timeline. These are sure to be unprecedented days, days many of the prophets have foretold that are coming to pass before our very eyes. These are both great and terrible days, great for God's people who remain faithful and terrible for those who willfully reject God. And here's a word for us to pay attention to and obey. We have been given the whole of the canon of Scripture. We have the recorded history of God intervening and working in the lives of his people to pour over and to learn from. We do not want to be like the Jewish people who, when being delivered from Egyptian oppression and control, became fearful while God was working in their behalf. When God intervenes, people suffer. We will see and hear of terrible things in the days ahead. But we must keep focused on the truth that God is delivering us from evil. Yes, Pharaoh and his army pursued God's people as God was leading them out of bondage. And it was frightening, and it may seem like that for us in the days ahead. But we must not do as they did and allow what we see to overcome what we know by faith. God is leading us ahead into the promises he has made for us. We must learn from history and choose not to become fearful no matter what we encounter. Make a point of aligning yourself with people who are strong in their faith for Christ. These are days where courage is essential and faith in what we know about the character, will, and the intentions of God must reign supreme in our hearts and minds. God is leading his people worldwide out of the bondage of evil control and oppression and into a new era of law, order, justice, and righteousness. Trust in this and choose today to remain faithful. So, since many of us are convinced God lowered his gavel and declared his intervention on July 4th, and since many people, including Clay Clark, believe we're living in the days Jesus explained in Matthew 24, I thought I'd provide you with some thoughts about our current times in light of eschatology, which is the study of the end times. I'll start with a precious story. Well, at least it's precious to me because it involves my daughter. Several years ago, when I was writing either Prepare for the Harvest, Confidence in God's End Time Promises, or its sequel, Prepare for the Harvest, God's Challenge to the Church Today, I was sharing a little bit about the book with my daughter. I told her how I never wanted to study eschatology, let alone write a book because there are so many differing views, and each view does a good job of using scripture to support their conclusion. I explained how the end times includes the tribulation, the return of Christ, the rapture of the church, and Christ's millennial reign, and how there are three generally accepted views of the timing of the rapture, or when Christians in the world will be caught up in the sky with Jesus, as explained in 1 Thessalonians 4:15 to 18 
Well, she wanted to know a little bit more about the tribulation, which I'll share with you in just a bit. But I explained that there are three dominant views about the rapture. I explained the pre-tribulation believers contend the church will be raptured before the tribulation. Then there are those who believe Jesus will rapture his church in the middle of the tribulation. Still another group believes the church will be raptured after the tribulation. Then I explained to her that my view of eschatology is what some have called pan-trib. Because it will happen according to God's perfect plan, and therefore it will all pan out. Well, she was amused by that, and then she said something like, I didn't know exitology was so confusing. And I got a big kick out of that, and I told her she came up with the perfect term for how many Christians are living their lives today. They are merely self-focused and waiting it out until Christ raptures the church. For these Christians, the term exitology is a perfect fit. If you're inclined to follow the example of some Christians with this exitology mindset, I encourage you to reconsider what you believe and pour over scripture before you make a final conclusion. None of us want to believe something that isn't true, but unless we examine what we believe and why we believe as we do, we could easily be deceived and unaware of our condition. Now, let's explore what the Bible has to say about the tribulation, especially since that's a time anyone in their right mind would want to avoid. Jesus made clear just how terrible future events would be when he spoke to his disciples as recorded in Matthew 24, Mark 13, and Luke 21. It's important we compare these three accounts of Jesus' instructions. So make a point of reading Matthew 24, Luke 21, Mark 13 in different translations to gain as much understanding as possible. In all three books, Jesus first told of the destruction of the temple. We read that Jesus and his disciples left the temple and were walking away when some of the disciples apparently looked back and marveled over the splendor of the temple, and they highlighted that to Jesus. In response, Jesus made clear there would come a day when all the stones of the temple would be torn down. The destruction of the temple, then, needs to be what we focus on at this point. No doubt the disciples were dismayed at Christ's statement, and then they asked him to tell them more. Contrasting Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we see the response of the disciples was actually four questions. First, when will these things be? When will the temple be destroyed? Number two, what shall be an advanced sign of these things? Number three, what will be the sign of your second coming? And number four, what shall be the sign of the end of the world? So as we consider Jesus's response to the questions, we have to distinguish between the destruction of the temple, the sign of the times, Christ's second coming, and the end of the world. And we need to keep in mind, prophecy almost always has two fulfillments, a former and a latter. History reveals the destruction of the temple Jesus and the disciples were viewing occurred in 70 AD. But the end of the age, or the end of the world, has not yet occurred. So we need to keep alert to know how to apply the words of Jesus at a time in the future. What's curious is Jesus' words about the destruction of the temple said nothing about his coming or the end of the world. But somehow to the disciples, destruction of the temple meant the end of all things, and apparently they expected Jesus would return at the end of the age. Based on their question, it seemed at this point the disciples had at least some understanding that Jesus would leave and he would return. Otherwise, they would not have asked about his coming. Jesus first addresses the signs of the destruction of the temple, stating that many would claim to be him. Jesus tells the disciples to make certain not to be led astray which affirms he alone is the Christ, the Messiah, the promised Redeemer and Savior of the world. Jesus was also aware of the tremendous expectations of the Jews for him to establish his political government or his kingdom, allowing them to be free from the oppression and the tyranny of a worldly government, the Roman government, that had been ruling over them for a very long time. 
trying to wrap my head around what the disciples were probably thinking. They knew they were God's chosen people through Abraham, yet time and time again they were held in captivity. While there are many captivities the nation of Israel suffered, the predominant are the Egyptian captivity, then the Assyrian captivity, then the Babylonian, followed by the Persian. Next was the Greek captivity. Then at the time of the disciples that we're studying right now, we know they suffered Roman captivity. But since that day, we know of other times when the Jewish people have been persecuted up to our present times. Undoubtedly, the Jews of Jesus' day longed for their earthly sovereignty, but Jesus instructed them to remain focused not on the temple or earthly governments, but on him as the long-awaited Messiah. So he's telling us, no matter what happens around us, keep our eyes fixed on him. For all of us, today, worldwide, seeking solutions to the gross increase of evil, oppression, and tyranny through the overreach of government, we must take serious Jesus' admonition to look only to him and not see government as any type of a savior. Let's consider our present world reality. More and more, truth is coming out that people in government and in positions of power, influence, and wealth have created the sufferings we are all enduring. We're learning how and by whom the Wuhan virus was created, who funded it, and how self-appointed elite planned the pandemic to gain control over the masses and impose their personal plans. With more and more people waking up to truth, we have tremendous opportunity to share the gospel and to help people look only to Jesus and not to earthly governments. Was there a time in history when people claimed to be Christ? Well, we have no direct history of the appearance of such persons in that anyone who did claim to be the Christ or led people astray left no ongoing institutions or followers. Although a case could be made today, given the tremendous increase of Satan worshipers, that many are believing in him as their savior and are most definitely being led astray in our day. Remember, in the last of the last days, the man of perdition, the Antichrist, will claim he is the savior of the world, which will be a future application of Jesus' warning not to follow anyone but him. I believe what we are experiencing now with the increase of evil is a foreshadow of the last of the last days. Jesus explains, we'll hear of wars and rumors of wars, nations rising against nations, but we are not to be alarmed, for these things must take place. And he adds, the end is not yet. Jesus also stated, the end will not be all at once. These passages and some others are why I firmly believe we are only in the beginning of the end times, as bad as things are. So the first sign of the end times was people claiming to be the Christ. The second is wars and rumors of wars. Then Jesus warns of great earthquakes in diverse places and of famines and pestilence and terrors of great signs from heaven. Great natural disturbances, then, are the third sign. History reveals such natural disasters did occur between A.D. 47 to 63, but the end of the world has not yet come. So we need to look for similar events after A.D. 63, but still the end is not yet. These are things that must take place first, and since our existence is evidence the end is not yet, we must look for future application of this third sign. A fourth sign Jesus provided was the increase of persecution for their faith in him. Jesus warned that men will lay hands on Christ's followers, persecute us, and deliver us to the governments to be convicted and even killed. Well, the book of Acts provides an abundance of evidence of the fulfillment of such persecution. Peter, James the Elder, and James the Younger, and Paul, and doubtless many more of the apostles suffered martyrdom before the destruction of the temple. The ancient historian 
Tacitus bears testimony to the hatred and blind bigotry of the age when he speaks of Christians as, quote, a class of men hated on account of their crimes, end quote. I guess their crime of being Christian. But fulfillment of this fourth warning has occurred, and certainly to this present day, there have been serious persecutions of Christians worldwide, and we're experiencing increasing persecution here in the U.S. But the end has not yet come. And also, as we are experiencing in these very days, God is intervening to restore righteousness and judge evil. We are already in a time of God's people being raised up to become the influence on the world with God's power and authority and plan to push evil back in our days. Now, notice more of Jesus' response to his disciples. He says, And through all this, the gospel must be preached into all nations. Paul wrote in Colossians chapter 1, verse 23, that all the known world at that time, the Greco-Roman world, had heard the gospel, both Jews and Gentiles. Even so, the end has not yet come. So, we must look for another application of this following the time of Paul's writing. And we must be engaged in the mandate from Matthew 28, 18-20 to preach the gospel, making disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all Christ commanded with the promise that Jesus will be with us even until the end of the age. So, what Christ actually taught is that all these things are the beginning of travail. And while it seems there's been an initial fulfillment of the signs of the times, there's clearly more to be fulfilled in the future. Jesus went on to say, In our patience and suffering, by persevering, we will establish our testimony and win many people to Christ. And let's remember, Jesus gave us more prophecy about the last days that we also need to consider. One that I believe has already begun is the great harvest of souls. I've said before, the enemy has overplayed his hand, trying to circumvent this time of the great harvest of souls, that Christ spent considerable time teaching. But God won't allow it. He has already intervened, and we are in the midst of seeing God administer his justice, bringing judgment against the wicked and rewards for the righteous. Many prophets have declared we're in a time where there will very soon be great celebration as God intervenes and his existence will be irrefutable. We can expect God to push evil way back and for the church to be reestablished as the ecclesia Jesus intended us to be. We may be living in the fulfillment of aspects of Matthew 24, but let's not forget additional end-time prophecies God has given us, such as this glorious time of an explosion of truth and justice. We are blessed to live in this time when God is resurrecting righteousness. Praise God! If you didn't get a chance to listen to last week's podcast, please do. It's all about the great harvest of souls and what we as the church and as individual Christians must do to be in partnership with God in these amazingly glorious days. I've heard some say our glory days will last 10 years before there's another transition. I've heard others say 20 years. And I heard another prophet on July 7th actually claim that we can look forward to 100 years before there's another transition. No matter what it is, it will happen according to God's perfect plan. And I doubt God is going to give us specific dates because he knows our human tendencies would be to put things off and we wouldn't be ready until the last minute. He doesn't want us to know some dates and times, so we will not be caught asleep. In fact, in several passages, Jesus warns us to stay awake, ever watchful, lest we be found slumbering. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus warned of a time when Jerusalem is surrounded by armies, and that too would be a sign of her desolation. He explained, When we see the abomination of desolation spoken of through Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place where he ought not, that is the time we can know the end is very near. 
These will be the days of vengeance, that all things which are written may be fulfilled. There is yet to be a time of great tribulation such as there has not been since the beginning of creation. For there shall arise false Christs and false prophets, and they will show great signs and wonders to lead as many as possible away from Christ. The prophet Daniel gives us more details concerning the end times. Barry Cooper helps us understand and interpret scriptures considering future fulfillment. I'll have a link for you in the show notes. Quote, Daniel speaks of a prince who will destroy Jerusalem, together with its temple and its sacrifices. He says that forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress, and shall take away the regular burnt offering, and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. Who is the him in that sentence, this person who will profane the temple and fortress? As is often the case with Old Testament prophecy, there is a long-term fulfillment of the prophecy and a short-term fulfillment. In the short term, Daniel's prophecy was fulfilled by a king called Antiochus Epiphanes IV, who ruled Palestine from 175 to 164 BC. He treated Israel so terribly that Israel rebelled against him, and when he arrived to suppress the rebellion, his forces went into the temple in Jerusalem, set up an altar for Zeus, and offered pigs as a sacrifice. Not only was this idolatry, of course, but it defiled the Holy of Holies, the most sacred inner part of the temple where God was said to dwell. Hence the abomination that causes desolation, desolation for the people of Israel. But when Jesus talks to his disciples about the abomination of desolation, he speaks of it as a future event. He says, truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all of these things take place. And typically in scripture, a generation is 40 years. So, if Antiochus Epiphanes was the short-term fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy, who was the long-term fulfillment, the one Jesus spoke of? Well, sure enough, Cooper continues, within 40 years of Jesus' words, the temple in Jerusalem was again desecrated. It happened in 70 AD, and this time it came from the Romans, led by their commander, Titus. His armies were an abomination because they carried with them idolatrous images of their emperor, and they brought desolation because they destroyed the city of Jerusalem and its temple, and once again the Holy of Holies was defiled. The Jewish historian Josephus claimed that 1.1 million people, most of them Jewish, were killed during the siege, so that the bodies were literally piled up all around the altar. The usual population of Jerusalem was likely enlarged, given that many had come to the city to celebrate the Passover, which was to occur right as the siege was being launched. Prior to the siege, the Romans had allowed Jewish worshippers to enter the city for the feast, but they did not allow them to leave. In love, then, Jesus spoke to his disciples about this horrendous event in advance to prepare them for what was coming, to warn them ahead of time so they could flee the city. End quote. Following Jesus' warnings, we know the Romans desecrated the temple in 70 AD, but that was a long time ago, and we're still here needing an idea of where we are in God's timeline. So what we know is Jesus was speaking in the New Testament era. He was speaking of a time of destruction of the temple ahead of the time he was living. It was a prophecy, a forewarning. And since we are still here, I consider the destruction of the temple in 70 AD to be the early fulfillment of the prophecy and that we are still waiting for a latter fulfillment of the prophecy. And apparently God questions agrees with me. Let me quote, most Bible prophecy interpreters today believe Jesus was referring to the Antichrist who will do something very similar to what Antiochus Epiphanes did. This is confirmed by the fact that some of what Daniel prophesied in Daniel 9.27 did not occur in 167 BC with Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus did not confirm 
a covenant with Israel for seven years. It is the Antichrist who in the end times will establish a covenant with Israel for seven years and then break it by doing something similar to the abomination of desolation in the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. The author on the Got Questions website continues, Whatever the future abomination of desolation is, it will leave no doubt in anyone's mind that the one perpetrating it is the person known as the Antichrist. Revelation 13.14 describes him making some kind of an image which all are forced to worship. Turning the temple of the living God into a place of worship for the Antichrist is truly an abomination. Those who are alive and remain during the tribulation should be watchful and recognize that this event is the beginning of three and a half years of the worst of the tribulation period and that the return of the Lord Jesus is imminent. Be always on the watch and pray that you may be able to escape all that is about to happen and that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. End quote. Perhaps you know that there has been an ongoing effort to construct the third Jewish temple in Jerusalem, and the effort is rapidly progressing in our day. Chapter 8 of my book, Prepare for the Harvest, Confidence in God's End-Time Promises, addresses this third temple. In my book, I confess, before researching to write the book, I didn't believe that there would be a third temple, because I believed that Jesus was the final sacrifice, fulfilling all of the Old Testament, that there is no more requirement for animal sacrifices. I believed with the final sacrifice completed in Jesus, there is no need for a third temple, especially in light of the passages that say Christians are the living temple of the Lord. I believed reinstating the temple sacrifices would be a failure to acknowledge Christ's work as complete. However, for unbelieving Jews, those who don't recognize Jesus as the promised Messiah, a temple is necessary in their minds. And in light of the book of Revelation, it seems a third temple is indeed necessary for God's end-time plans to be fully played out. Israel 365 News posted about the Jewish priests' very recent animal sacrifice reenactment as training for the third temple sacrifice offering. I'll have a link for you in the show notes. Considering the events provided in the book of Revelation, clearly there will be another temple. As you can see, there is far more we don't know than we do know. That awareness alone ought to keep us dependent upon God, and I think that's exactly how God intends it to be for us. The idea of a pre-tribulation rapture is the newest doctrine of all end-time doctrines. Quoting from my book, Prepare for the Harvest, God's Challenge to the Church Today, I share my position asking you to reconsider yours. Quote, Who wouldn't want to believe in a pre-tribulation rapture that allows us to escape the worst of times the earth will ever see? No one wants to sign up for suffering. The pre-tribulation rapture doctrine, more fully treated in the fourth book of my Faith to Live By series, is the newest of all end-time doctrines. It was popularized by Hal Lindsey with his book, The Late Great Planet Earth, and the Left Behind book series by Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins. The Bible, however, makes it clear that only some Christians will escape, and I understand it to be those who are holy, represented by the Philadelphia Church city in Revelation. During the last days, when God is judging the people on the earth, many more will repent and find their eternal destiny in heaven. However, some will refuse to place their faith in Jesus, and this willful choice will find them spending eternity in hell. We have to understand how serious the times are in which we live. Our choices today determine our eternal destiny. Living ungodly lives, which originates in our hearts, separates us from God and all that is good, even if we are born-again believers. 
the liberal cultural mindset today deems what was once considered sin by God to be no longer sinful. This is a lie from the pit of hell that many Christians have accepted as truth. What God declared sinful is sinful for all times. God is very clear. His people must be holy because he is holy. God cannot tolerate sin, and he has given us the means to refuse to participate with sin. When we succumb to sin as his own, we should expect to experience discipline in the form of remedial judgment. Perpetuating that doctrine that the whole church will be caught up in a pre-tribulation rapture, in my considered opinion, is a scheme of the enemy to deceive Christians and to prevent us from being prepared. We must begin teaching with great urgency the need to repent and cooperate with God to get His truth deep into our hearts. We will then live godly lives and be an influence upon the people of this earth to choose eternal life through faith in Christ. When Christ returns, He will administer final judgment on both the living and the dead, and there will be no further opportunity to repent. End quote. I don't know about you, but I consider these days we're living in as bonus days. As the church, we have not been actively engaged in the culture. We have not successfully fulfilled the mandate of Matthew 28, 18-20, known as the Great Commission, to make disciples of all nations. Surveys have shown a steady decline in Christianity over recent decades, and 1 Peter 4.17 is clear. Judgment begins with the house of the Lord. Why? Because we know the truth. We are no longer deceived. Therefore, we have the responsibility for helping those who are deceived. And remember, when a person is deceived, they don't know they are. That's the nature of deception. Think of your sons, daughters, grandchildren, friends and family members who don't know Christ or who profess Christ but are not living for Him. Do you understand what a very dangerous place they are actually living in? They don't realize their reality. They think they're living on the basis of truth. They think we're the ones who are deceived. And isn't that the most brilliant counterintelligence move? The enemy of God has convinced those who don't know the truth that those who do know the truth are the ones deceived. In 2012, when I wrote my first book, Examine Your Faith, Finding Truth in a World of Lies, the task of presenting truth to closed-minded people was much more difficult than it is today. After everything the world has suffered under the cloak of COVID-19, people are essentially panicked to know the truth. They're desperate to know the truth. The worldwide atmosphere today makes it abundantly easier for us to approach people and begin dialogue about truth. And I want to share one question I stumbled upon about 20 years ago now. I was booked to be a speaker for a weekend-long retreat for a group of women, and I arrived early to meet and greet the women as they arrived, which I normally do. And the room was abuzz with chatter and excitement. From when behind me, a tall, commanding woman approached me, speaking in a loud voice, clearly intended for me, saying, quote, I just can't believe in a God who will send people to hell just because they don't believe Jesus was anything other than a good teacher. Well, as you can imagine, the whole room came to a deafening silence, and every pair of eyes were looking at me, waiting for my response. You can bet I quickly said a prayer, seeking the Lord's help. At this point, I hadn't even connected with the women, and I had the whole weekend ahead of me to spend with them. I knew if I did not get it right, it was going to be a very long weekend for me. Then I found myself asking her, Are you searching to find the truth, or do you think you've already discovered it? The woman's mouth dropped open, and her face adapted a puzzled look. Then the women all around the room resumed their lively chatter. Apparently, with the help of the Holy Spirit, my response satisfied everyone, 
and I breathed a very deep sigh of relief. But from that, I stumbled into the best question we can ask to start a conversation. Are you searching to find the truth, or do you think you've already found it? People inherently know discovery of truth is a process. It's not a once and done. All of us have had something that we thought was true in the past that with more experience and knowledge, we realized was not true. There's no shame in that. So with this understanding and a loving and respectful mindset, especially today when people are starved for truth, we have more ability than ever to help people discover and live in life-giving truth. In these current days, it's easier than ever to share truth because people are starved for truth. People everywhere are finally awakened to the fact that we've been deceived, lied to for decades, and no one likes to be lied to. Not even a pathological liar likes to be lied to. God wants every single one of us to come to the knowledge and faith in Jesus. He doesn't want a single one of us to perish, but to have everlasting life in holy relationship with him. While the enemy of God tried to prevent it, the great harvest of souls is upon us. Can you imagine the celebration in heaven for this long-awaited time on God's timeline? God is about to have a great influx of people come into his family. Our prodigal sons and daughters and friends and family who have not fully surrendered to Christ are going to be swept up in some of the most miraculous times the world has ever seen. We may be living in the time of Matthew 24, but the end is not yet. So I'm looking at you square in the face. I'm asking you, what are you going to do with these bonus days? Consider attending any of Clay Clark's Reawaken America Tour events. A link will be provided for you in the show notes. Attend any of Mario Murillo's tent meetings. Consider having me work with your local church to conduct a Come Back to God evangelistic outreach event. Or just lovingly invite someone you know who needs the Lord to go to church with you and then enjoy a meal following where you can talk heart to heart. Whether it's 10, 20, or 100 years of bonus days, we don't know. So we must make the most of them we can sooner than later. Next week, we'll continue with this theme about where we are in God's timeline, and I'll be bringing to you some of the interviews I capture at Clay Clark's Anaheim Stop with his Reawaken America tour. If you like what you've heard today, consider becoming a subscriber to my bi-monthly e-newsletter, which will make you a preferred member, where you will receive special announcements and offers not available to others. With so much going on every day, let's also stay connected on social media. There's a list of my social media accounts in the show notes. And don't forget to check out the free resources and bonus items listed on the Charisma Podcast Network page and on myfaithtoliveby.com page. On that landing page, there's a link for more information about my sponsors and partners. And again, if you've been blessed by my ministry, purchasing the goods and services I bring to you is how you can support me, and it would be greatly appreciated. If you've enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes, Spotify, Google, or wherever these features are available. Your review helps the show reach more people and spread the gospel and helps people learn how to best apply their Christian faith. Also, depending on the platform where you listen, why not subscribe to this podcast so you're sure not to miss a single edition? I hope you'll join me next week and tell your friends and family to listen right here on Faith to Live By where we learn how to gain spiritual victory over life's issues. Until next week, I'm Pam Christian, asking you to remember Christ died for us. The least we can do is live for Him.